0: Hello, my name is Cameron Duncan. I'm director of photography of shows like Cobra Kai, Longmire, The Preacher, and Hot Zone. You're listening to The Go Creative Show.
1: Hey, everyone. My name is Ben Consoli. I'm a director and owner of BC Media Productions. And this is The Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. Today, we're speaking with Cameron Duncan. He's a cinematographer of a whole bunch of shows that you know and love, like Cobra Kai, Preacher, Longmire, uh, 13 Reasons Why, and so much more. And we're going to get to all of that with Cameron in just a couple of minutes. Actually, we have a pretty interesting discussion about split diopters and filming with everything in focus, really, really deep, deep focus, and kind of the challenges that that poses and how it can also be just a fun thing to try for yourself in your own work. So, um, You'll certainly like that. But of course, you know, we get into cameras and lenses and all the goodies and the tasty stuff that we get to on Go Creative Show every single week. I want to encourage you to follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And of course, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. I also want to thank our sponsor, MZ, Education for Creatives. All right, let's jump right in because there is so much to discuss with Cameron Duncan, Director of Photography so i'm here with cameron duncan director of photography and cinematographer of a whole bunch of shows that you know and love 13 reasons why cobra kai preacher hot zone longmire and so much more and we're going to get to all of it with cameron right now cameron thank you so much for joining us today
0: my pleasure thanks for having me man
1: so i learned about your work through cobra kai and I know you were involved in season one, and I want to start there because the Cobra Kai is one of those shows that just, like, all of a sudden, people started talking about it. It just, it, uh, no one really knew. They wanted to learn more about these characters from Karate Kid. You didn't yeah. know. You didn't know you cared until it was available, and then everyone's like, "Oh my god, I need to know what's going on with these characters." And it just is kind of one of those weird pop culture phenomenons that just come out of nowhere and take off. And I'd love to hear from your perspective, kind of how you got involved in the show, how it was presented to you and just, you know, your impressions of where it ultimately went.
0: My agent brought it to me uh, and it was a previous producer I'd worked with on Queen of the South. So I think maybe a year prior I had worked with this producer that was producing the show now and, uh, when my agent said it's, it's called, it's a show called Cobra Kai about the, uh, continuation of the karate kid. Initially, I gotta say, I was slightly apprehensive. It sounded a bit cheesy, um, or it could be cheesy, certainly. Um, but who's not a fan of karate kid? Like anytime you're flipping through the TV and it's there, you're, you can catch it midway and I can get sucked into it. And it just reminds me so much of my youth and and the classic style filmmaking that it, that it uh, garnered was just, I think they did some wonderful work on it. We tried to emulate some of it in, in the show. So um, I initially took the call because I was familiar with the producer and AD that was going to be on it. And, um, and so that excited me to work with them again. Um, and then as I read the script, the pilot script, it was just phenomenal. Hmm. I mean, it's, it was hilarious. It was sad. Um, I liked how they presented uh, Johnny Lawrence. Uh, I mean, everything about it was just phenomenal. So I definitely was up for taking the meeting. And um, upon that, I went down to Sony uh, to their office. And as soon as I walked in the doors, three guys, uh, John Hurwitz, uh, 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 Hayden Schlossberg, and Josh Shield. And the three of them have known each other for quite some time. But as soon as the door opens up, on the, on the wall is this massive banner, Cobra Kai banner. And to me right away, like these are my kind of guys, like they're so dedicated and hardcore that they have a massive banner in their office. Uh, And so that just right away, I I, I felt very at ease with them and comfortable. And um, I had a great interview.
1: When you're thinking about this series, uh, what are you thinking like you personally can bring to it? Because it has such a developed aesthetic already with the original movies. Now coming back in 20. you know, 18, 19, whatever it was that you guys kind of started it out and like bringing kind of that to a modern day. What is it from a cinematography standpoint, from a visual standpoint that you want to bring to it, to modernize it, but also pay homage to its original roots?
0: You know, there's a lot of factors. Obviously digital is such a significant part of our industry. Now, uh, very few TV series are shot on film and obviously karate kid was shot on film initially. um, So there's that aspect, too. You got to throw that out the window. You're not going to shoot on film, most likely, unless the producers are pushing for it. So what I wanted to do was revisit the glass, the lenses that were used on the Karate Kid. Hmm. And so I went to Panavision, uh, which is where they used their gear originally, and um, talked to Dan Sasaki about the lenses that were used. And he was excited because he's a fan of the film, too. So uh he got real excited about the idea of me wanting to replicate what they had shot with uh back in the day and we essentially did that we shot with uh cook five to ones uh cook ten to one zooms um and if you notice in the original karate kid there's just fantastic zoom work um that is done and a lot of times there's a single shot but it's all done with the zoom is used to create coverage uh, whether it's with the blocking um, with the actors and the movement on the, the dolly and the zoom, so um, the director was uh, very aware of how to utilize and be economic with with the uh, with that aesthetic back then, and so we tried to do some of that. It's tough in this day and age uh, to not have too much pacing in the show, um, unless it's uh, something that's I think brought to you by the showrunner. What do you mean? Because editorial. Would, well, you, when you're when you're working and you create ideas and concepts with a director um, for TV, you can uh, execute, but that doesn't mean it's going to be in the final cut. So when that material goes to the editor, the editor wants to do some work to it. And then the showrunner will eventually get to do some work to it. So it, it can be, I not want to say chopped up and butchered, but it, sometimes it can be. So if you try to do a four-minute shot with zooms and dolly movement. Um, And the only way you can kind of preserve that is if you don't do coverage, additional coverage, which is tough to kind of get away with, I think, in modern TV because so many people want the ability to be flexible in post, which is, you know, understandable. So I guess what I'm saying is that we didn't quite achieve what they had done in Karate Kid as far as the... Long zoomy dolly moves. We we did a few of them, but not a lot of them. Um, but beyond that, the glass uh, was very important in the decision making because I wanted to use uh, those old zooms. Uh, but for the interior work, we also used um, old uh, Super Speed Zeiss lenses, which were also on the original Karate Kid. Mm. So that was really important to me, is to uh, for this nostalgic that we all are aware of when you see, watch Karate Kid in order to do Cobra Kai, I didn't want to fall too far from the tree. I wanted to kind of embrace that, that aesthetic. Um, and especially with the Johnny Lawrence character being somewhat stuck in the same place he was 30 years prior, uh, and hasn't really uh, evolved in a way that I wanted to kind of hold on to that nostalgic and that look even more, uh, because the show really is, you know, it's called Cobra Kai. So it's mainly about his, his, uh, I think character arc, not to mention, you know, not to say that, uh, Ralph Macchio and and David Rooster doesn't have one either, but, uh, you know, it's called Cobra Kai. So it's, you gotta start at the, at the roots.
1: Yeah. You mentioned the idea of coverage and how important it is in TV. Talk to me a little bit more about that. Are you finding that a common thread when you're, or a commonality across the shows that you do for TV, where there's this request for a ton of coverage?
0: Um, I think earlier on um, in the shows I was doing, yeah, uh, and it, it comes from because I, I, I guess because when you have a guest director come in, because every uh, TV series, if you're doing ten episodes, you're quite likely going to have ten different directors, um, and so every director that comes in, they they want to get hired back by the producers that they're working with, and so they don't want to screw them over and not give them lack of coverage and. It really comes down to the producers and showrunners about how they want the aesthetic of the show or how they feel about uh, coverage and, and having the the, uh, the ability to change things in post as far as editorial goes. So a lot of directors come in wanting to give the producers everything that they can use as tools in post. But then you get some directors that don't think like that at all and want to, or I guess, slightly more outdoor about it and want to shoot exactly what they want to do and in the cut and present that to the producers and be like, listen, this is it. This is my work. Um, you know, hopefully you like it. But in the end, there's always generally speaking more coverage than you than I like to want to do.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about the benefits of it. What, what are the benefits of having an enormous amount of coverage or not even enormous, but just more coverage than you would normally do. What is the advantage to it? And then on the flip side, what is the disadvantage to it from you know, your standpoint as a cinematographer.
0: The advantage is that you have more flexibility in post. And that and that, that is a valid argument because things change when it gets to post. Um, the, the, the feeling in, in the scene that the actors are giving all that, a camera movement, it might feel right in the moment when you're shooting it. But once it's in the cut, once it's placed in, in its kind of its time slot within the, the, the program, it might not feel right because previous scenes were maybe too slow or too fast and so you you need to you know create a certain amount of pacing in order to be entertaining for one but also to tell a good story so i do get it um the other side of it is is that you do the prep work you discuss with the director what you want to do and you Try and come up with a, a an idea in your head. At least I do, as far as what the cut will be like and how certain coverage would be necessary or not necessary. Um, and you kind of cross your fingers and hope for the best, in a sense. Uh, and I prefer that method. I rather uh, cut in camera, in a sense. Um, not that I don't trust the editors, but I I feel like I need to tell the story as best as we can in the camera on the day shooting and let posts have an easy time. Um, so that's generally my approach. Um, so I don't like to to do over-coverage if, if not necessary. Yeah. And sometimes you don't have time for it. <laughs> Quite frankly, sometimes the schedules are so crazy um, that you have to bet, pick and choose your battles, too, as far as coverage.
1: And I can imagine if the coverage is such where you need a second or a third angle, it's going to put some limitations on how you like.
0: For sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. I mean, it's always a compromise. Um, I, I'm very familiar with working with two cameras um, quite often. Uh, it's not my first choice, but um, as far as making days and whatnot, I've, I've gotten used to it. And I, uh, the third camera is is definitely not as fun because you're definitely compromising at some point. Um, but there are ways to, you know, to, if you're doing a single source lighting setup, for, for instance... Uh, one camera could be doing the side light and another camera could be shooting the backlight. So it, it it can work. Um, it just really depends on, on the scenario.
1: Now, Cobra Kai was, I, I I don't know if it was the first or one of the first series to launch YouTube red, which is now YouTube premium. Um, and ultimately got bought by Netflix and, you know, is in its third season now, I think something, second or third season. Um, But at the beginning, it was for specifically, well, let me ask, was it, did you know that this was specifically for YouTube at the beginning?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, Yeah, go
1: ahead. No, I was going to say, so knowing that this is kind of to launch a new streaming service in a way, um, how were there decisions made on your part that supported this idea of knowing that the viewership is going to be on YouTube only?
0: I want to say for myself, I didn't necessarily take that in consideration, and not in a disrespectful way. It's just I any t- any project I come onto, I-, I want to make it the best it can possibly be. Um, I did in the back of my mind think that are there going to be lots of kids just watching on a little handheld monitor like an iPhone or something, which I- I'm not too excited about. But uh, that didn't make me think that we should change the way we shoot it and have an effect in that sense. Like you can't get too wide because you're not going to see all the elements in the small frame. I, I didn't, I, that didn't affect my decision-making or, or the three guys. Um, Cause I think they always uh, saw it as something more than something that's just going to be on a small screen. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but it. It was, I believe the first, uh, program to launch or, or maybe the second one, I forgot there was something else, uh, that was out there that I don't think got much fanfare, but, um, certainly this one did. I mean, they had, you know, we shot the first season in 2017. So it's been some time and that when that aired on YouTube, it was, it chalked up 50 million viewers in the first, I think six months or something crazy. So automatically we knew people liked it and it was a hit, but I think that was just for the first two episodes because they were for free. Right. Mm-hmm. So after that, you had to buy into it. I don't know how, what, how much people watched after that. So when Netflix took it over and it basically had like a, like a second life in a way, like, I mean, it's crazy to, to have such a hit round one. And then all of a sudden it finds new life and it's like, it's bigger than it was ever before, which I, found hard to believe, but at the same time, not because it is, uh, you're reaching out to a huge, a bigger demographic. Everyone watches Netflix. Um, and again, who doesn't like karate kids? So
1: that's interesting to hear you say, because I was thinking, and obviously wrong, I was thinking like uh, YouTube is a bigger platform. I was thinking, I'm like, okay, well, YouTube is a bigger platform. So that naturally would be like the best place for this even though I, I think the issue was people didn't necessarily go to YouTube for content like this. It, it, it you didn't really go there for shows the way that you do Netflix. And it just makes sense to be on Netflix now and more people can see it. And I think it's it's a better home, even though YouTube is such a gigantic platform. I think Netflix is still a gigantic platform, but is better suited for that type of content.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's why YouTube walked away from original content. Yeah. Because it just they weren't they weren't getting in the game. I mean they they have a purpose. We all go on YouTube, uh, but for original kind of more theatrical narrative content, they, they just couldn't get a foothold. I don't think.
1: yeah. so I want to talk to you about your approach to lighting for Cobra Kai and and specifically like the way that you dealt with its kind of naturalistic look because it does feel very it feels very natural all the time. interiors, exteriors. It has a very natural feel. It also has kind of a modern present day feel because it takes place in the present day. But there's a touch of that nostalgia there where you always kind of know you're in the Karate Kid universe and you can't really put your finger on it. But uh, you talked a lot about lensing and, and what you chose there. But there has to be some decisions in lighting that got you to that
0: point. Uh, what I, I, thank you. I think those are all very complimentary, uh, observations. And, um, I, the, the approach was, I had actually I had to go back and look at my notes, quite honestly, because I've done a few shows in between, but, um, what I struck out to do, and this is all coming through conversations with the showrunners, with the three guys, um, about where the show was going to go, how they wanted to portray, johnny and and and, uh and and daniel and um the theory behind johnny lawrence was that he's basically stuck under a rock like no one knew what happened to him he's kind of been lost in the abyss of, of the san fernando valley in a sense uh so in the lighting approach i always wanted there to be some sort of uh hard light but never if it was in interior space it never wanted to hit him like, cause he never made it into the spotlight was the thought like he's never, he just wasn't that, that he never took that path because he, he got kicked in the face and lost the belt. Right. So he's still suffering from that, uh, metaphorically speaking. And so the lighting, I always want to kind of keep him more in the shadows, never the perfect lighting for him. Uh, and again, if there's any hard light for the interior work, that it would be either in the background, just on the side, maybe edging him a little bit, but he was never in, the beautiful sunlight of the valley. You know, Take that outside, it's a little bit harder to control when you're doing exterior work. So when we're doing exterior work, I didn't want to soften the light on him. I wanted it to be harsh. Like, this is his harsh reality. He gets beat up every day. Poor Johnny. And so that was kind of the the thought process for for him. Uh, For Daniel and Ralph's work, it was quite the opposite. Like, this is the glory boy. This is the guy that you know, did the kick and won and got the girl and went on to make two more movies. (laughs) Right. Uh, so he, we tried to, uh, I guess manicure the the light a little bit more for him, um, and make it nice and, and, uh, and, and soft and kind of like the always kind of in the perfect situation if we could. So that was, that was kind of the approach to kind of give a, a bit of a divide between the two characters as if there isn't one already. So that was the approach there.
1: You can really feel that, and I think also with um, you know Danny's character, like you, it, it, when you first meet him in the first episode, you think like everything is perfect, and you start to peel away the layers and learn more about him as you go. Was there anything from a lighting standpoint that you did as we are learning more about his character?
0: <laughs> Dude, the honest answer is I can't remember, but I think so because <laughs> yeah. that is something I do take in consideration. Um, but it's, uh, it's tough because I, I rarely go back and watch the work I've shot. So, actually, just before this call, I, I was rewatching the first episode uh, and, and laughing out loud. Um, Why? Some of it. But uh, uh, I just, Billy Zapka did such an amazing job, man. Like, I mean, he's been working off and on over the years. Uh, but to get this stage back where he can play this character again. I mean, it just, he did such an exceptional job that, I mean, the part that I start cracking up on is when he's watching, um, uh, iron, iron Eagle and he's you know, drinking away his sorrows. I just, I, it brings me back to the moment when we're shooting it. Um, and he just was, he's such a sport, man. Like they they both are just incredible. Ralph is just an amazing guy too. Um, so it was fun to revisit that. And actually I, I'll, I'll probably go on to keep watching the rest of it uh, this weekend. Cause I, I do actually miss it. And, um, Uh, It'd be nice to kind of catch up on it. So, uh, back to your question, I think we did, uh, but I can't give you any examples.
1: Well, do you do you not like watching your work at all? Like, is that just a common thing for
0: you? Yeah. Do you even see it
1: on the first airing?
0: Generally, not. No. Really? um, Yeah. um, Why? Because I I spend so much time with it in prep, um, and then doing the work over the course of whatever it is, you know, five to 14 days, wherever the, wherever the show might be. Um, and that it's almost like at the end, you're purging it in a way, um, for me. And then I see it in the color session. So I see it again in that aspect. I will, I always ask my directors for their cut. Cause I want to know what as a team, what did we come up with? What'd we complete? Um, and so that I'll always watch and give thoughts on, uh, and then I see a color version of it, usually double speed, <laughs> and and then that's it. Like it just—it's hard to go watch it again. I mean, now I also have a one-year-old, so it's even it makes it even more hard to go back and watch any sort of uh, uh, footage. But um, then I imagine going forward, it will be too. But yeah, it just—it's not my thing. I once once it's in the can, I'm I'm kind of good.
1: So your perspective on it is unique from the audiences, anyway. I mean, like you really—it's just it. I guess I'm not surprised. I think that happens a lot. I think people don't want to see their work so much, but it feels like we're such a visual medium. You would, you'd want to, but it make it, you know. In in a way, I can see it making sense just to kind of let it go. There's something freeing about that as well.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I do. I watch dailies because um, that's a learning experience in itself. Because you come up with thoughts on, on regarding movements, time when you want to make a move. If it's handheld, you know, what are you doing? And so that's always a learning experience, and I always recommend that to anybody. Um, when you're shooting, if you can watch your dailies, make sure you watch your dailies because you learn a lot about um, the tone you're setting, um, and if it's going to work, you know. And so once once all that information has already been processed to me, like I, I to see the final product, I generally don't. I mean, it's 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 kind of rare. Yeah, and actually, I, you know, I, I kind of take it back at Panavision after we wrapped it in the QA and a there. And so I saw it again and, and and the, um, uh, cast and crew screen that we had in LA afterwards, which is all great. And it's, it's great to see with an audience too. Like when you can see yeah, that must your be fun. work, especially that kind of work with an audience and just to hear the, the, we watched the two first two episodes, uh, at the cast and crew and it was a massive theater at the CAA building. And it was just a great time because you could feed off the energy of the crowd.
1: Let's take a moment and talk about education for creatives. And there has never been a better time or a better place to get that education for creatives. And it's all there at MZ.com, M-Z-E-D.com. Now, MZ, on MZ, there are hundreds of hours of video-based, really high-quality filmmaking education We're talking about education in in topics like directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. In fact, one of their newer courses is the Art and Technique of Film Editing with Tom Cross, A.C.E. He is an Oscar-winning film editor who actually edited La La Land. So we're talking about like A-list educators, talking about all sorts of topics that you need to know. Now, this is the perfect time to hone your creative abilities and get better at your craft. And on MZ, it's the perfect place to do it. Now, let me talk about their educators. Vincent LaFerre, Shane Hurlburt, Philip Bloom, the Ari Academy is on educators. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we talked about Tom Cross, of course, editor of La La Land, but there's so much more there. And yes, you can buy individual courses and that's fine. But the best thing to do, honestly, is to become an MZ Pro member. Because when you have that subscription membership, you have access to their library of education you can just blow through these as quickly or as slowly as you want, really dive into a whole bunch of different topics. Like if you, you know, when you buy individual ones, it's the one that you're of course most interested in and you're going to, you know, get to focus a lot of time on that and learn and learn and learn. But sometimes th- there may be things that you didn't even think you wanted to learn more about, but because you have that membership, you are exploring different areas that you may otherwise not have explored. So there's There's just so much benefit to becoming an MZ Pro member, and that's why I am, and I absolutely love what they have to offer. So so it's all there at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D, education for creatives. I want to transition to your work on 13 Reasons Why. Now, I know you came in at season two, but you sort of were tasked with creating a new look and vision for it. Tell us about that. Tell us about kind of how you got involved with the show, what you were asked of and how you did that.
0: So I was brought into uh, season two of 13 reasons, um, because they were, they were concerned about the way it looks for season one and no disrespect to the DP that shot season one, but it just wasn't what they were looking for. Um, they, uh gravitate towards my reel and saw the work that i do and and i as we spoke about uh cobra kai i have a a bit of a more natural approach to to my lighting um and so i i brought that to season two along with a little bit more dramatic lighting um and bringing in some more uh shadows and such because it's i mean it's a it's a bit of a dark show you know it's it's a heavy uh it can be a heavy mood on set from time to time um And so uh, I just brought more dramatic to it in a way. I don't want to simplify it, but that was really the result is that uh, we changed the camera and lenses and um, and the lighting. Uh, The gaffer was new um, to the show. I should say he was the rigging gaffer, uh, but he he became the main gaffer. Uh, So we, we kind of changed a lot in order to make it, to make it different.
1: So in a situation like that, you're coming onto a show, you know, it already has developed, look I guess how were you approached by them would you, did, did they come to you and just say we want a fresh start or did they have specifics about the direction that they wanted this to to go as far as the look
0: there was no um, guidance on direction um, it was uh, basically we want a fresh look um, and so we I think within the first episode or two you know, I would sit down with the uh, showrunner and just kind of discuss um, what we were doing and, and if we need to modify and modulate that those decisions and frames and things like that. And some stuff he wasn't uh, entirely happy with, so we'd have to you know, have to tell the operators, listen, he doesn't like the the lampshade in the back that's lit, so we get we can't feature those things anymore. Uh, so stuff like that. It was it was challenging for sure because he um, uh, the showrunner Brian York, he has a theatrical background. Um, So he's not used to or familiar with what we do on set and with lighting and and camera movement. Um, So it was trying to create an open dialogue all the time about what he was responding to and what he wasn't.
1: So from, you know, as a cinematographer, this is kind of a unique challenge because you know that there are audiences out there that love the show. And the look of a show is so much about what it is that you like when you watch it, whether you know it or not, it's the look, it's the feel it's, and you're going in there with a specific goal of changing that. What, I mean, do you feel like a certain sense of responsibility? Are you nervous about that? Like, how do you, how do you do that?
0: Yeah. I mean, there's, it it can be challenging for sure. Like, cause you don't want to get it wrong a second time. Um, but I think for me anyways, cause I, I, tend to notice those things, uh, if, as a fan of a show when you're watching, you can tell a slight change and you look up on IMDb and oh yeah, like the camera guys, all you know, it all changed a bit. Um, but I think to me, as long as the, if it's a serial show like that, it's not an anthology and it's, it's the same actors are back and you yeah, have been the same drama. I think you get lost in it regardless. You know, that's my thought. I think the lighting helps for sure, but the script isn't good and and you're not engaged in the story, then you're going to start noticing the lighting and you shouldn't. In my opinion, you shouldn't be noticing that stuff. It should be uh, a bit of a magic show in a sense. Like I don't want you noticing too much of it. Like I want you to be involved in the story and the characters and, and let the photography almost be in the background to a certain degree.
1: Yeah. So can you describe the changes you made to the second season? Like what, 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 what did you set out to do? Like, can you articulate what your goals were? And then also what did you do to achieve those goals?
0: Um, honestly, the main thing was contrast to bring in more contrast to the show. Um, I felt as personally that it was season one, uh, was maybe a little, a slightly flat from time to time. Um, and so, uh, that was, to me, the thing that I knew I could uh, create quickly and change quickly um, in the show. And so that was kind of the primary thing we did. It was just create uh, more contrast, uh, less sources um, or hotter sources, depending on on the scenarios. Uh, like the school hallway, uh, I had the uh, the rigging gaffer turn. Basically, I told them, show me all the lights that you guys used for the hallway. And he did, and I said, okay, let's start. Let's turn that one off. Let's turn that one off. Let's turn that one off, mm. and just to uh, create more pools and and less and not to, for it to be as flat. So it was small things like that that we did over the course of a lot of these different sta- sets, standing sets, and uh, things like that.
1: So did you kind of go set by set and <laughs> revamp?
0: Yeah,
1: yeah it, that that's an interesting thought. So you you did more kind of pulling away than adding.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Exactly. What
1: what does that contrast do? Like uh, incorporating more contrast visually? What, what does that language say to audiences?
0: I think inherently it just feels more dramatic, right? Um, a less contrasty show, um, is to me feels slightly either more comedic or like feels like an old school after school special in a way um and it's a choice you know like i'm not saying uh, my choice was necessarily the right way uh but um it's what how i envisioned it and how i saw it and so uh i go with that and it, it also depends from scene to scene with the stories and the characters um you know you you need to modulate that contrast too it doesn't always need to be in silhouette or uh always need to be a sidelight um situation so in things like his bedroom clay's bedroom I tried to create that more of a into a single source situation with light just coming in through the windows of the, of the house and less, uh, fill light. So it was little things like that you kind of take away. Um, and to me, the material is dark enough as it is, but I felt the, the image should also, um, kind of be in that wheelhouse too.
1: Yeah. And I think you definitely see that as the story progresses for sure. And there is, there's something about contrast that makes you almost wonder more about the character. Like you want to know, you want to learn more about them. What is in that shadow side that you can't see that, that type of stuff I think lends itself to the storytelling as well.
0: Right. And where, where are these people hiding? Because that's a lot about the show too, is, is everyone's got their secrets. And, and so I think that helped in in that regard as well.
1: Did you change your camera lens package from season one to season two. I mean, I I know you weren't involved in season one, but were you making those changes as well?
0: Yeah, that was actually the first time that I used the Panavision DXL2 camera. Actually, sorry, it was a DXL2 The came out later. Uh, And I think we were one of the first shows that, that used it. It's their, their large sensor camera. Um, And so that was, uh, we changed camera rental houses and everything. I, I I used Panavision quite a bit. Um, So that was also a bit of a learning curve too to use to shoot a show with a large sensor because we're dealing with um with more information different optics uh different ways that the eye sees the 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 image in a way because you're taking the you know i'm not the techie guy i'm definitely the creative intuitive guy so when you're losing. So I won't be, you know, uh, I can't speak verbatim to the information I've been given by Panavision on this. But when you're losing, using a large sensor, the optics, uh, it's almost more like the real eye sees as far as how objects are in distances to the lens. And so you get a bit more out of it in that sense. And also uh, your fall off focus wise is much more extreme, too. So in order to create a shallower depth, you don't have to do much about it. You can shoot a, a two or two eight, and still get that fall off that you would get shooting wide open or at a 1.4, let's say, or, or a 2 on uh, uh, 35.
1: I haven't had much experience with that camera and I hear it occasionally on Go Creative Show. I mean, usually you hear Alexa's, you've been hearing you know, Venice quite a bit now. There's been a few here and there that talk about the, um, uh, D- is it DXL? Am I saying that right? Correct, D- yeah, yeah, so yeah. I- I've heard that a few times on the show. Um, did you test any other cameras before ultimately choosing that Panasonic or Panavision?
0: I did. I, I tested with the, I shot side by side with the Alexa. Mm. Yeah. But I, I preferred the separation that I got from the larger sensor. Uh, and I felt that was also key for the, um, for the kids and their storytelling. Why? Um, because so many of them feel isolated, you know, like there are so many clicks and the uh, and there's so much you know bowling to a certain degree that I wanted to have that that ability to isolate characters within within a frame in in, in an environment um, and also we shot flashbacks in anamorphic uh, lenses so all the present day material was spherical that's something that we did adopt from season one which I was excited about because I love shooting anamorphic. So, uh, and what the large sensor did with the anamorphic lenses that we basically were able to shoot the, the entire offerings of the anamorphic lenses. We weren't cropping that you get when you're shooting with an Alexa, um, or other cameras that aren't large sensor like that. So we were shooting um, basically true anamorphic two to one. And that was also the aspect ratio. I changed to, um, they shot one, seven, eight season one. And I pushed for the the two to one aspect ratio just to make it more cinematic. Hmm.
1: What did you love about having that anamorphic in the flashbacks, and comparing that to you know this kind of isolated feel and look of the present day?
0: Um, I think the there's an inherent quality to anamorphic, which I think is why it's so popular right now. I mean, you look at any film from the '70s and '80s through to the 90s it's like any of the epic films are, are anamorphic you know like all the Clint Eastwood westerns are mostly anamorphic um it, it, so there's just this inherent quality to it especially in a close-up that you just feel this I think to me it's a visceral like kind of energy to it um that is unique and you don't get it in any still photography it's only in in the cinematography that you can use these anamorphic lenses um and so, to me, it just screams cinematic immediately. And the bouquet fall off you get from it too, with the uh, elliptical uh, out of focus specular highlights, are just they're super tasty. So it's uh, it's something that just I think as soon as you project an image on anything w- with those, you just you cannot help but love them. And they're to me they're overused now. Like a commercial, a Jack in Box commercial is using them, you know. So it's it's kind of uh, gotten I think away from what we all loved it for, but. Uh, I can't fault cinematographers for wanting to use them all the time because they're beautiful. I want to transition
1: to your work on preacher. Sure. Talk to me about the visual aesthetic of this show. Now, I, you know, looking through the show in preparation for our interview, it's like you got to play with so much with this show. There's so much color in there. And just there's, it, it, there's a lot of scenes that are like completely in focus. So like very deep focus, lots of great color, um really strong grades in some of the scenes. And it just seems like such a fun show to be part of. Can you talk to us about first of all what the sh- what is the show about and um your approach to the visuals?
0: Uh so the show is about a preacher that is uh kind of slightly lost, but also in search of God to get answers, right? And there, it goes beyond that. There's it's layered and layered and layered and and uh um the, the writer Sam did an incredible job. His background came from Breaking Bad, um, so uh, the storytelling is just phenomenal. Uh, so the uh, the show is uh, characterized by uh, Dominic Cooper, Ruth Negga, and Joe Gilgon, uh, who's just an incredibly talented and, and funny individual, and makes the whole set crack up to no to no end. Like he's got he's got uh, um, what do you call it uh, diarrhea of the mouth to a certain extent. Like it's just <laughs> insane though. Like, but it all makes sense. It's all like it's like his, his brain is just, is just spewing. It's just amazing. Anyways, um, it uh, it's based on a graphic novel from not too long ago, like the 90s, uh, about a preacher in search of God. And he gets the, the voice uh, of, of God, essentially called Genesis, that's kind of stuck within him. And, and he's the only one that can use it, but people are trying to get it from him. And then chaos ensues. Um, I didn't start the show. Uh, and a colleague of mine, John Grillo, uh lens the first season and he set the look i should go back an old boss of mine bill pope who i was a film loader for on team america he shot the pilot mm. and so he set the initial look and then john Grillo came on continued to look and then obviously over the course of uh three seasons uh you know kept it going and expanded it um, i first shot a season in an uh, episode in season three for John Grillo when he got the opportunity to direct so the cinematographer a colleague and friend of mine I got the opportunity to direct and he asked me to shoot it for him And it came down and shot the first episode that he directed which then parlayed into me shooting season four because he went on to to do other work so I shot season four in Australia um and so from that perspective it was a completely new crew um, I was the only face that the actors recognized, and I still wasn't, you know, totally familiar to them in a sense, right? Because mm-hmm. we worked for eight days uh, the year prior. So, um, I what I was excited about in taking on that show was that it is super colorful. It's all the things you mentioned, yeah. But that being in a new location meant that I could also affect the look of the show. I wasn't inheriting sets. So that was something I was really drawn to, uh, aside from the subject and the show itself, because it's a wonderful show, but as an artist, I want to be able to put to it what I can. Um, and so with it being again, like it's a, it's a road show, So with it being a totally new location, I knew that I would have the opportunity to do that. And the actors are wonderful too. So, so what,
1: what was the location that you had in your season?
0: Uh, we were shooting in Australia for Texas and Australia and, uh, and Masada, which is you know, the Middle East area. So, uh, so what does um, that
1: like, what does that give you what you, you think of those three locations and you're thinking what?
0: Well, Masada was interesting because that was, it's, it's a harsh desert environment, but they're basically inside a cave. So there's not a whole lot of uh, of natural sunlight that that is seen in it, except for uh, in in uh, Airstar's office. Um, so that was uh, became its own challenge in a way. Like, how do you create light and lighting naturally inside a cave? Uh, I mean, we we obviously had fixtures of certain sorts, but um, in order to create an ambient uh, light, we need kind of some sort of vibe. And I I'm always motivated by light. I don't want to just always create something for the sake of it albeit i think that kind of show you could because it's a comic but i still wanted to kind of stick to my my natural aesthetics as, as far as uh, how i think about a show and so we tested gelled lights and tried to figure out what i came to to, to call with my uh, gaffer uh cave the cave color which became a blue I think we called it cave blue or something. It was, I forgot what the Rosco gel number was on it, but we, cause we tested so many as long as uh Carl McGaffer knew what it was. Then all, all I would have to say is that Carl, we need, we need cave blue over here. I need to show up with it. So that's how technical I get. Um, uh, and so, uh, that was fun. And then, uh, we had an amazing, uh, production designer, uh, that created just amazing sets, whether they're on stage uh, for the Masada stuff or on location using uh, trailers that he, he, he put together and came up with this idea for uh, for a diner, and which was still, to me, one of my favorite scenes, just because it, it feels Americana, but it's Americana somewhere else in the world. It's in Australia. Mm. Um, and so uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, and again, I used the DXL camera for that. Uh, so we were a large sensor um, beautiful lenses that Dan Sasaki had tweaked. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, like that show, we had so many different locations, man. We were, we were out in locations where Mad Max was shot in oh, the wow. first Mad Max. Yeah. It was really cool. Um, uh, we were in places where you'd go in a tech scout and there'd be a hundred kangaroo just flying across the road at any moment. Like it's just, it, it, I mean, it, it People in Australia, they it's new. It's not new to them, right? But you have taken these directors from the states that came over to shoot, and everyone's out, out their phones taking pictures of the kangaroos. Yeah, uh, and so their scenery, their 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 terrain, and the light is different down there too. It's in you know southern hemisphere, so there's just so much freshness to me about it that I was inspired, and uh, I feel like I did some of my best work down there for sure. Can you describe the
1: quality of light? in australia how it differs
0: um it differs in the sense that it it's it can be harsher for sure like in on a clear day you can feel the what is kind of the slight absence of the ozone down there and i i, I i'm pretty sure don't don't quote me on this but i, I i'm almost certain that it's a little bit thinner down there uh because they're they're real big pushers of uh sunblock down there they have a whole. Uh, uh, cancer council down there and uh, lubing up with sunblock is something that everybody does because mm-hmm. it is harsh um, but it doesn't come off that way necessarily and we were there in their summertime it was hot as F down there when we first got there mm-hmm. I mean it was brutal um, and it was a dry season too uh, which they've been having lately. So the sun is intense. It, you think it's intense in California or places here in the South. It was uh, even more so there. But the quality of it could be, it was interesting because it would be crisp, but then you would have these uh, like inversion layers where like the lighting would just be so soft and magical and you're out in the middle of nowhere. It's vistas galore and, um, I don't know. I, I felt it, it, it was similar to uh, months before I was in South Africa shooting in the Southern Hemisphere, too. And it wasn't unlike that as well, where there's, um, it's hard. Honestly, it's, I, I wish I could kind of pinpoint the, the quality of it uh, a bit more or why it's like that. But there is a major difference coming from the Northern Hemisphere to the Southern Hemisphere as far as how the sun hits the Earth. And um, I, I, I found it to be pretty cool.
1: Well something i noticed in the show is your use of really deep focus in some of these scenes like there's something i love about that we had somebody on oh it's going to kill me hold on let me see if i can find it because we had somebody on recently talking about deep focus and on their show oh i'm scrolling through my website at gocreativeshow.com let's see it, it was um it was an hbo show um Oh, my God. Oh, The Plot Against America. That was it with Martin Algren. Mm-hmm. So, all right. The Plot the plot Against America on um, HBO, I think it was. Regardless, we talked in depth about this idea of deep focus and how when used effectively, like it can be so great. And I, I want to talk to you a little bit about that because I think you did it masterfully in Preacher. And it's like the, the challenges that we identified in the, the last time I spoke about this was that Yes, you give the eye, you give the viewer's eye a lot to look at, but in your blocking, and your lighting, and your camera movement, you, you, like the challenge for him, and I'm curious if you feel the same way, was the, the fun of it was to, how do you direct the eye when everything's in focus exactly where you want to go? It was sort of like a new challenge for a cinematographer. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, the use of deep focus, why you did it, and how did that change the way that you lit and shot?
0: That's a very, very good question. Um, it, in achieving it, there's two ways that we did on Preacher. And one is by the stop on the lens. Um, and the other one is by using split diopters mm. um, in order to keep foreground focus and background focus. And that was something that was adopted from John Grillo's, uh time on Preacher. So I wanted to keep that going as well. Um, so we use split adopters quite a bit, um, but, uh, to answer your question about how you direct their, the, the attention of the audience to a specific area, because everything's in focus, um, I think it comes down to a lot of factors. It comes down to art department, production design, the lighting, all those things can affect the frame and where you're looking, you know, are you looking towards the vanishing point? Are you looking towards a justified position on left or right of the frame and, and how do you create it there? So I think there's a lot of elements that can do that and the staging of actors too, right? Someone could be big in frame and someone could be a little bit, uh, further out, like, in like an old spaghetti Western. Um, so I think using those kinds of perspectives too, can help direct the eye. And sometimes it's not easy. I mean, it, it, whether we achieved it well all the time or not, I can't say cause I haven't gone back and watched it. <laughs> That's but, right. Uh... You never watch your work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, you, I think it comes down to, too, like uh, the working with your director, you know, and like dialoguing about it, like, hey, where's where are, you, where are you looking right now? Like, is are you looking, what part of the frame are you, are, are you focused on? And if, is that the right spot? If it's not, then we need to change it. Mm. So uh, there's not like a, you know, a, a recipe for it necessarily. Um, but you also look at great paintings from great artists and that can help too, you know, like there's the reason why I try and go to the Norton Simon museum here in LA and and stare at paintings from time to time just to, to see how they did it. Um, and hopefully you can adopt that to, to, to your work osmosis or somehow. Talk to
1: me about this split diopter and what it actually does. What does it let you do as a cinematographer?
0: It allows you to, um, keep something that's, uh, in the background, in focus, that's where you throw. That's where you lay your focus on the on the lens. And then you put you. There's different layers of split adapters, three, two, and one, and they all have different powers. And so it becomes an experiment as far as how it's going to work. Um, like your microphone, for instance, if that was further away from your phone, uh, I'm sorry, further away from your face, and you want to keep your face and the microphone in focus, you would have to kind of figure out the distance that the microphone is at and the diopter that's right for it. And so what will happen is that you end up keeping both elements in focus. So like imagine something like that, and then when it's turned this way, they're going to both be sharp. <sighs> um, so it's uh, it's all fine-tuning it. There literally is a, a diopter. So, and, and unfortunately, it's actually not a split, but it is a diopter, so we get the idea. Uh, so if I do something like this, imagine half of it's there, half of it's not. But if it's so close to the lens... You're not going to see that blurry section necessarily, or you find a place to hide it. Yeah. And uh and so yeah, diopters are a great tool to use in order to affect the image. And you look
1: at some stills of just people, you know, using split diopters. I mean, in one of the scenes in Jaws, like one of the most famous scenes, they don't even shy away from the blurry edge. Like you have right, in yeah. focus, a blurred edge, and then in focus. And it, it gives you kind of this really surreal look. I mean, obviously the goal was for it to feel and look surreal. But I think what what I saw, at least uh, what what I was getting from Preacher, is that it, you didn't really get that blurred edge so much. It, it felt just more like everything was in focus.
0: Right. Yeah. I think that generally the idea was to hide hide the edge if we could. Yeah.
1: What are the, what are some but, of the techniques to hide that edge?
0: Um, props, background. Yeah. Uh, finding you know depending on how you have that. Uh, that diopter, that split portion, that half portion, if it's at an angle, then it can be a little more challenging. If it's up and down, you can hide it in a door frame, right? Um, yeah, it, it becomes challenging. And, and But I, like, something, like you said, like in JAWS, you, it's obviously you see it, so you know, sometimes you got to let it go, and, and hopefully the audience doesn't sit on it too long to think, or if they do, who cares? It's, it's all suspension of disbelief anyways.
1: Yeah, if any of you guys listening uh, or watching have experience with these. I'd love to hear your thoughts because it's something I want to experiment with. It seems like a really fun tool, but there's so many situations where like, you know, I'll, uh, I'll be shooting something and I'm like, uh, you'll put it in focus and you'll realize, oh my God, we just don't have the set design to fill all of these gaps. And it's just so easy to just blur it. Clients love it. It looks beautiful. You know exactly where to look. I think there's such a temptation to isolate your talent and blur everything out. And I think it's a unique and interesting challenge to kind of let everything be in focus and see what you can get out of that.
0: Yeah. And I think it's also comes down to aesthetics and styles, you know, in in the in our contemporary lives right now. Like it's just, it's it happens to be that kind of vibe. People want things out of focus more and that shallow depth of field and everyone shoots wide open and and it seems to be a trend. And and it's a beautiful look. And it it works for a lot of stuff. But I I'm also drawn towards the extreme depth of field and i actually i'm looking for a i'd love to do a project that is everything's in focus Like a noir, like you know think orson welles like touch of evil or something or or citizen it's just everything's in focus i would love to do something like that that because you're using different uh you know you're using different tools like you said like how do you create the viewer's eye to a certain to a certain spot without using the easy way of defocusing it
1: and our last few minutes, just curious, what are you excited about right now? I mean, Hollywood is kind of at a standstill during COVID. I mean, some shows are still going on. I mean, there, certainly some movies are shooting. But for the most part, the entertainment industry has kind of slowed to a crawl, um, if not stopped in some locations. What are you seeing in your industry? You're in Los Angeles, right? Is that where you yeah. live? Yeah. I mean, what, yeah. what are you seeing? What's the vibe out there? How How are people dealing with this?
0: Um, (laughs) it's, it's unnerving, you know, and I got me switch over because my earbuds are actually dying. So I'm going to go to my laptop audio. Okay. Sorry, buddy. Can you hear me now? Yes. Um, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a unnerving time, for sure, as far as the industry right now. Um, I talk to quite a bit of my colleagues each day about their shows. And uh, one of my friend's shows just shut down uh, because someone, I think, makeup got got COVID. Um, I also think it's the safe indus- safest industry right now because I'm starting a job Monday, actually, where we get tested three times a week. Um, so I don't know a whole lot it, uh industries that are being tested that often or or at all, right? I mean, there's so many jobs and people out there that don't get the ability to get tested. Um, so the fact that they test this three times a week makes me feel a bit better about it. Um, I know the PPE, PPP stuff, uh, PPE, uh, is troublesome. I mean, we we work in an industry that's very social. I mean, it's people on set stand next you all the time to talk, and it's, it's, a, it's a cool thing to do, and it's an amazing industry that we're in, but to take that away, it's going to be challenging and, um, and a bit odd. So, uh, I'll be able to elaborate more in a couple of weeks for you, but, uh, I i am excited to get back to work. Um, I've been off for a bit and, um, I need to get back to the craft I love doing. Uh, and it's just going to be a different way that we operate until there's a vaccine that is effective.
1: Yeah, That's, I wish you the best with this new project. Can you tell us the name, anything about it?
0: Uh, sure. It's a uh, dead to me season three. Oh, great. So, uh, yes. Yeah, the Netflix uh, dark comedy with uh, Christina Applegate and Linda Cardellini. Oh, excellent. But I'm so glad to see you guys
1: out there working again. Um, it's just so encouraging to to see the resilience of this industry and in continuing on like it, especially, especially with quarantines. The mm. value of television is just it's it's just so important to have great stories, to watch <laughs> it really is great stories to tell great stories to watch so we're we're so thankful that you guys are out there working
0: through this thank you yeah i i agree and i think it's something that w- w- in regards to how they do the protocol that i think if there is another shutdown that we might still be working just because um it's been closed for so long and so many people have been suffering financially but again what you said like it's an outlet for people that are staying at home they need they need the content i mean it's an industry that doesn't suffer during recessions, you know, it's always strong even during recessions. So this is the only time besides a strike that we've been shut down this long.
1: Yeah. Well, Cameron Duncan, director of photography, definitely check out his work, cameronduncan.net. There's so much other stuff here. We didn't even get a chance to talk about, but go to the website, look at his work. Anything else you want to promote, Cameron and Instagram, Twitter, anything like that?
0: I have an Instagram account. I don't twit. Um, I don't Facebook. But um, yeah, n- not not much else. I'm, uh, I'm I'm low on words and big on images. <laughs> well, that's perfect for Instagram. <laughs> that's why I probably love it so much.
1: Is it just your name, Cameron Duncan? <laughs>
0: I think it's Camerones.
1: Camerones.
0: Yes. All right. Yeah.
1: We're gonna put it. a link to it in the show notes so you guys can check it out. But um, cool. do uh, go to cameronduncan.net and check out his work. And Cameron, thank you so much for being on Go Creative Show.
0: Ben, thanks for having me, man. It's been a pleasure. It's a real blast. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you. All right. I want to thank Cameron Duncan for coming on Go Creative Show and sharing his experiences with all of us. I also want to thank connor crosby for producing the show you can find him at ignitionvisuals.com and of course matt russell over at gainstructure.com for mixing mastering and making the show sound so good his team can be found at gainstructure.com and they certainly work for us at go creative show they do all of my audio work at bc media productions and you can hire them too for your own projects over at gainstructure.com Of course, follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. I also want to thank our sponsor, MZ Education for Creatives. And of course, we want to thank all of you out there for listening and supporting the show all these years. The show notes from today's episode and all other episodes are at GoCreativeShow.com. And of course, we will see you next week on another episode. Go Creative Show! podcast for filmmakers.